0: Well, we're in a series where we are talking about kids, but not just about kids, because the things that we're really looking at apply to all of our relationships. And last week, we took a look at two of the five principles that bring out the best in our kids. Last week, I gave you some stats that I want to refresh your memory on, and that is that 40% of our kids in America are in houses without the presence of a father and mother. In some demographics, it's as high as 78%. You and I need both men and women in our lives to understand the image of God. God said, I have created both male and female In my image, men have a part of the image of God. Women have a part of the image of God. That's why we need each other. God has both masculine and feminine qualities. And so, you may be married or you may not be married. Whatever the case is, you need both a masculine presence and a feminine presence. Truly, this is the first generation in history that is trying to build a civilization without moms and dads present in the home. And I know that some of us here are single parents and not by choice. And we at LifePoint are here to help. In fact, one of those demographics, that of single parents, is what we really have a heart for in our community, living beyond our walls, It's outrun homelessness, and we focus in on single parents. And we have seven organizations that we give ourselves to, and many of them are just single moms trying to make a living and trying to raise their kids. We are here to help within the walls and outside the walls. But here's the good news. Another study that I mentioned last week is that the number one factor that determines whether a kid is going to make it or not is not their ethnic background. It is not their economic background. It is not their geographical background. It is whether they have a caring adult in their life. That is what makes the difference. And that caring adult doesn't have to be a parent. Obviously, if it is, that's great. But it doesn't have to be. If you are a guy and you are a gal, what that means to you, and you have no kids, you need to volunteer. And I say that sincerely. Folks, I, volunt- I am a dad to some kids. In fact, let me just share this story. There was a kid who's growing up, this was 20 years ago, and mom went through a divorce. Not one that she chose. She came to me about two months later and says, George, my son needs a dad in his life. Will you be a presence? A man presence in his life. I said, I will. And over the years, from about six years old, all the way through high school, all the way through college, all the way through graduate school, then he got a job in theater arts. Alex Hope. I correspond with him on a regular basis. I just got an email from him George, I'm getting married. You need to be involved in kids' lives, whether you have kids or not, because you can shape their life. They shape you and you shape them. Take a look at this verse out of Proverbs chapter four or 24 in verse three. "It takes wisdom to have a good family, and it takes understanding to make it strong. You have to have wisdom and you have to have understanding. Now, what underpins that is a motivation and that of this that you don't have forever to build into kids' lives. Your time is limited with them. Last week I demonstrated that through these marbles. This full jar of marbles stands for a person, a child from birth through high school, you have from birth through high school 933, 936 weeks with that student or with that child, that person. Think about that, sounds like a lot of time. But by the time they're nine years old, you only have 468 weeks left with them. That's the time they're in third or fourth grade. By the time they are driving, and I would say this, I've experienced it. Once our kids get a car, all you have is a bed and breakfast, okay? (laughs) You got less than 200 weeks weeks left with them. The distance between this and this is 364 weeks. And it goes by, bam, like that. And and Moses says in Psalms 90 that you and I need to number our days. God, give me a heart of wisdom that I might number my days. Folks, we don't have time to do it all. And so we've gotta be selective. One of the ways that you get wisdom is through God's word. When Cheryl and I were married, folks, there were no marriage books out there. And the only book on kids was by Dr. Spock. Any of us remember Dr. Spock? and it wasn't good, okay? You need God's wisdom. You need it for your career, you need it for your marriages, you need it for raising kids, and you need it to bring out the best in other people. Last week, I mentioned two things in bringing out the best in our kids and in others. That is accepting their uniqueness completely, affirming their values continually, and I said that there are some enemies against these two things, comparing and conforming. We talked about the three reasons that you and everyone else is valuable, that the Father made them, that Jesus Christ died for them, and that the Holy Spirit lives in them. Today, we're going to take a look at the three other things that are needed in order to bring out the best in our kids and into other people, these three things are, 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 are the most important things that you and I must keep in focus, along with the other two. These are three things that most Christians just totally overspace. In fact, they are three of the biggest mistakes that we make, and I include myself in this, in parenting. And that is, we overprotect. We overcorrect uh, and we overindulge. I want you to get out some pencils because I'm going to give you everything I've got on this. First one is this, or the third one on this is that you trust them with responsibilities. You entrust them with increasing responsibility. Folks, nothing brings out the best in someone faster than having someone trust you, having someone believe in you. Someone who comes along and says, I know you can do this. Jesus said, the way that you build, uh, uh, build people up and grow them is by entrusting them, is by giving them responsibility so that they can become response-able. That they are able to respond, ultimately, to God. Responsibility means that you are able to respond. If you never give anybody the opportunity to respond, how in the world are they ever going to be responsible? I like to read. You can go to any bookstore, any library, and there are literally hundreds and hundreds of books on leadership. But here's the problem. You don't learn leadership through reading a book. I'm working with about seven guys right now about the church. You don't learn it about reading a book or watching DVDs. You learn leadership by doing. You don't learn parenting by reading a book. You learn parenting by becoming a parent and doing. And by the way, the same is true in ministry. You don't learn what ministry is about until you start doing ministry. And what is interesting as you begin to do ministry, parenting, leadership, ultimately you make mistakes. And mistakes are good. We learn more through our mistakes, don't we, than through perfection. Now, Jesus talked about this in Luke 16 of helping people become responsible. And this should be one of the biggest goals that we have for our kids. That is to move them from dependence on you to independence of you to dependence upon God. How do you do that? Well, Jesus says this. Will you write this down? Trust him. With small things. Take a look at Luke 16, verse 10. Whoever can be trusted with a little can be trusted with a lot. And so, from the very beginning, you start, in fact, write this down you start early and you start small. Even before they're talking, you begin to give them some responsibility, and through time, you increase it. The second thing that Jesus says, will you write this down, is that you trust them with possessions and money. Verse 11 goes, he says, if you cannot be trusted with worldly possessions, then who will trust you with the true riches of heaven? Now folks, I don't have enough time to talk about this, but basically God says, how you manage your money will determine what other stuff that you get in life. Money is not the most important thing. And he says, if you handle your possessions and money correctly, I will give you other things. Meaning that money is a test. It is a test whether you understand that it's all God's and that you and I are just the managers of it. In fact, I know some parents who give their kids allowances. They're young. And they give their kids allowances. They give them a dollar a week, divided up in quarters. So a a quarter divided into a dollar is four quarters. I'm just I'm wanting to make sure you're with me, okay? And if you know where they're getting this from, because they have envelopes, okay? We all know where that comes from, right? And one quarter goes towards others, spending it on others. Another quarter goes for tithing or giving to God. Another quarter goes into saving and then the other quarter goes into they can spend it however they want. They're teaching their kids at a young age how to manage money and possessions. The third thing is this. Will you write this down? Trust them with things that don't belong to them before they get their own guitar a guitar you tell them let's see how you do with a rented guitar before you get your own car let's see how you handle someone else's car <laughs> folks this is true in ministry before you get your own ministry let's see how you do in someone else's ministry take a look At Luke 16, verse 12, and if you cannot be trusted with things that belong to someone else, who will give you things of your own? You see, what I am saying is to be a great person or a great partner or or, or a great parent or a great boss or a great leader, you must realize that people respond to responsibility. And if you want others to become responsible, you must give them opportunities to do it wrong. God did this with us, didn't He? He never forces anything on us whatsoever, He gave us a free will that we can use our time and our talents and our treasures any way we want. And oftentimes, guess what? We do it whatever way we want to do it, don't we? We do it wrong. He could have done it perfectly, but he entrusted us with responsibility to grow us up. We learn more from our mistakes than we do our successes. Now, obviously, there is balance in this. When your kids are first born, you are entirely responsible for everything in their life. But as they start getting older, you you start moving them into more and more and more responsibility. Truly, one of the most important things that you can teach your kids is learning responsibility. And yet, for a lot of parents, they guard their children from it because they have a deep-seed fear that their kids might fail. Failure is not fatal, folks. Helicopter. It's okay to fail. And if they do, if, when they do fail, let, may, may I say this? Do not protect them from the bad feelings that they have. Sometimes we don't want our kids to fail, and yet when they do, we try to cheer them up so that they don't feel bad. And it's one of the worst things that you can do. Failure is not fatal. And failure is a way and how to handle negative emotions within you. Studies have been done and have shown that overprotective parents produce emotionally insecure kids. Because kids don't know how to fail forward. And when they have that failure, they don't know how to process it emotionally. And so what parents actually do is that they are paralyzing their kids They're creating fear within them. And so they don't know how to fail forward and they don't know how to process it internally. And so by taking responsibility from your kids, you're taking the opportunity for them to grow. Life is tough, isn't it? And failure isn't fatal. And those feelings that come with failure, guess what? They pass. I talk with a lot of parents, you can imagine, who have told me this. If I had to do it all over again, I would do less for my kids. How many of us would say that? We're in denial then, aren't we? (laughs) I would do less for my kids and I would have them do more for themselves. I would teach them how to be responsible. Will you write this down? Anytime I take responsibility for somebody, I take responsibility away from somebody. Anytime I take responsibility for somebody, I will take responsibility away from them. And as a result, folks, they won't be able to grow and become emotionally mature. In our peace plan for Cameroons, folks, we are not doing stuff for the Cameroonians. To do stuff for Cameroonians robs them of their dignity. It it creates a dependency. When Jesus gave the great commission, go and make disciples of all the nations, the first thing that he said was this, teach them to do, not do for them. And so we're not teaching them. Uh, We're not doing for them. We are teaching them to do. And I bring a good report. After teaching the first two modules, I just got an email about a month ago, uh, that they have taken those two models and they've taken it into the Anglo area, area of Cameroon where there's all the tension between Anglos and Francophones. They are doing it. Once that foundation is laid of teaching them and then making sure they're passing that on to others, then we're going to move on to the peace plan of planting churches, equipping leaders, assisting the poor, caring for the sick, and educating the next generation. And we're not going to do those things. We are going to teach them how to do those things. And so this principle... Honestly, it's a very important principle. When you take responsibility for someone, you take responsibility away from them. And so when we do that, truly, it is like a form of rejection. We're saying, you know what, I don't trust you. And we are producing insecure kids. So the fourth principle is this. We write this down, correct without condemning. Folks, we all need correction, right? Because we're all imperfect, at least I am, okay? Helicopter, that's one, there's probably 100 other ones, okay? We all have flops, failures, and fumbles, and so do our kids. And this is what the Bible says about correcting. Take a look at Proverbs 3, verse 12. The Lord disciplines those he loves just like a father corrects the child that he delights in. Now notice that correction is not done in punishment, but rather it's done out of love. Parents correct their children out of delight for them and for the future that they envision for them. Now this may shock you. If you are a child of God, God never punishes you. If you have dropped Jesus from your head into your heart, if it is more than just a cultural thing, but rather it is a relational, transformational thing, God never punishes you. Not at all. He corrects you, He disciplines you, but He doesn't punish you. Punishment looks at the past, it is a penalty. For the past, Whereas discipline is correction for the future. It's because you see a bright future for them. Folks, there is a huge difference between these two. God doesn't punish you when you blow it with your flops, failures, and fumbles. Why? Because Jesus Christ already paid for your penalty on the cross. That's why. And for him to punish you twice would be called double jeopardy. It would be you being punished twice for it, okay? And that would be unfair. And God doesn't do that. And so when you have a thought, and when something goes bad in your life, well, God's just getting even for what I did 10 years ago. Has that ever crossed your mind? I hope not. Because that's not from God So as parents, we don't want to punish our kids. We want to correct them for their future. Now, I bring this up because there are so-called experts out there that say this whole idea of disciplining in the home is hogwash. But the Bible says you and I need to do this for at least two big reasons. The first one is, it is an outward demonstration that we really love our kids. And we've all heard that. I've heard that. George, I'm doing this because I love you. Yeah, right. Okay. But it's biblical. Take a look at Proverbs 13, 24. If you refuse to discipline your children, it proves you don't love them. If you love your children, you'll be prompt to discipline them. It is an outward demonstration that I love you. And then secondly, it aids in their destiny. The dream, in the essence, that you have for them. Take a look at Proverbs 19, verse 18. Discipline your children while they are young enough to learn. If you don't, you are helping them destroy themselves. Wow. You and I, when we withhold teaching them how to discipline themselves, we are aiding in their destruction. Folks, we must teach our children how to have a disciplined life. Why? Because most of what gets done in this world gets done by people who don't like what they're doing. But they do it, don't they? because of this thing called discipline. So how do we do it? How do we correct our children without condemning them, without making them feel shame, without harming their emotions? Will you write this down. Number one, never correct in anger. Never, 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 never correct in anger. When you're angry, wait because if you correct in anger more than likely you will overreact and when you overreact you will overcorrect and overcorrecting is just as bad as overprotecting take a look at Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 4 fathers don't keep on scolding and nagging your children making them angry and resentful. Instead, bring them up with the loving discipline that God approves with suggestions and godly advice. Folks, when I get irritated, I should say have been irritated. I'm still, you know, my kids, you know, they're, they're still not like me yet. They're still like their mothers, so there are times I get irritated with them, right? But I can remember, there were times in my life when I'd get irritated and it felt so good to let it out. I mean, revealing your feelings is the beginning of healing, right? You bunch of jerks, what are you guys doing? You're acting just like your mother, okay? (laughs) And it felt so good. But correcting in anger builds resentment. And it actually harms the relationship. And what you and I sow, eventually we will reap. Here's another way that you correct without condemning. We write this down. Choose your words carefully. Of all the times that you need to be the most precise with your words before you spout off is when you're trying to discipline your kids. You choose your words carefully. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 29. Don't use harmful words. Use only healthful words, the kind that build up. Will you write this down? Harmful words become hurtful memories. How many of us heard that poem? Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. How many of us heard that? Man, I heard that all my life growing up. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words can never hurt me. Guess what? That's just not true. Words are far more hurtful than sticks and stones. You can be riding your bike down the street and fall off of it and break your arm, and you'll get a cast on it, okay? And in two months, it'll be healed. And in fact, you'll look back at that and say, man, that was really a great time. Everyone noticed me and signed my cast. It was really kind of a cool time. And you will kind of forget of all that. But the words that were spoken, we remember 40 years plus, don't we? I'll never forget my dad. When I went into the ministry, you will not amount to anything. I'll never forget those words. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but they do hurt us. The Bible says that we are to speak the truth in love, so you have to choose your words carefully. Now, you need to especially choose your words carefully when they open up on their own. And let me describe to you what that looks like. That will not be a set-down meeting, knee-to-knee and face-to-face and say, let's talk. No, no it will be a time more than likely when you're in the car and they're sitting next to you, side by side, especially with guys boys don't like face-to-faces kind of angle, you know. I use this with my kids. Or they'll be in the back seat. And when they open up and if you and I overreact, boom, they will shut down. And it will be a hard time bringing them back. Now, every one of us here, whether we are a parent or not, the way you and I relate to them, the the way that we accept them, the way that we affirm them, the way that we trust them, the way that we correct them has an impact on their life. It does. And it will influence them and others for generations past. Sociologists call this the fifth generation rule. The rule goes something like this, your behavior and my behavior just doesn't impact our home, but rather it impacts four generations beyond us. Fifth generation rule. They've studied families along this. They studied a guy named Jonathan Edwards Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in the 18th century who was a good, godly man who parented his life along biblical principles, loving discipline, not punishment. And they studied a guy named Max Juke who was not a good, godly parent, who disciplined out of anger, mostly out of his alcoholism listen to the legacy of these two individuals. John Edwards was this. He in his legacy had a United States vice president, 3 senators, 3 governors, 3 mayors, 13 college students, 30 judges, 65 professors, 80 public office holders, 100 lawyers. I don't know if that's good or not. Uh 100 lawyers, 62 physicians, 74 army or naval officers, 100 pastors and missionaries and theological professors, and almost no lawbreakers in five generations. That is a wonderful legacy. On the other hand, in opposition to Jonathan Edwards is Max Juke, who disciplined out of anger. This was his legacy. Seven murderers, 60 thieves, 128 prostitutes, 140 others convicted of felons, 280 indigents, 440 family members who were wrecked by indigent living through addiction to alcohol. Out of the 1,200 descendants that they studied, 300 died prematurely, 67 contracted syphilis, and it was estimated that their descendants from New York cost the state 1.3 million dollars. Big difference. 40% of our kids, like I shared, do not live in homes where mom and dad are present. Some as high as 78%. And I think we are beginning to see the ramifications of that in our culture. We will not see our country turn around in our lifetime, we will see it happen through our lifeline, through our lineage, as we impact our kids and we do it purposefully. If you missed this, I'm hoping to bring this in because I'm a grandparent and I went to the grandparenting seminar with, um, I can't remember his name right now, That's because I'm 65 years old and it goes really quick. But he's from Focus on the Family. And he was talking about this changing our culture, not in our lifetime, but through our lifeline. And he shared a number of verses, and it just impacted my life. And as I was thinking about this, I know my vision is just my grandkids. And at my age... I. And they're so young, I probably will not see my great-grandkids. And so it's limited. And as I was there, I thought, oh my goodness. I have an opportunity to change our country and to impact four generations behind me if I do it right. And I started thinking about that. God, in our day and age, there's so many things I can give myself to. So many things like a shotgun, and yet they, don't, they won't make a big impact. But if I narrowed my focus and I did a few things well, maybe what I drive in to my kids will get to my grandkids, that will get to my great grandkids, that will get to my great great grandkids. And then God gave me a verse, Ecclesiastes 12. Wisely spoken words are like well-driven nails. And I said, Cheryl, after that time, Cheryl, we need to think this thing through because we have a limited amount of time. And yet, if we choose the right words and do the right things, not a lot, but a few, we can impact the world. That is the vision that I want for your lives. Don't be thinking of the here and now. Think of generations, five Five generations from now, in this country, doing a 180 turn. And here it is, right here. Your life. Get this on camera. I set this up and I think this is temptation for the church. Watch this. Isn't that cool? Let's do it again. Let's do this one more time. Come on, God, be with me. Wow. I love our church. <laughs> That's your life right there. These five things bringing out the best in your kids can impact generations to come. We may not be able to change our country in our lifetime, but we can do it through our lifeline. Can we not through that principle? And so what I am saying, whether you have kids or not, your influence makes a difference. Now there is a fifth point, and it is this. Love them fiercely love them fiercely love them unconditionally and let me explain this how do you love fiercely how do you love unconditionally where you impact four generations from you into the future let me give you some examples number one forgive them loving fiercely means that you learn to offer forgiveness To ask for forgiveness, to accept forgiveness, to forgive yourself. In other words, it is living in a spirit of forgiveness. Do you want a great marriage? I think most of us do who are married. Even if we're not, we still want a great marriage. I was sitting in a small group. Uncle Mac and Aunt Annie, are you out there? Where are you at? Stand up, Uncle Mac and Aunt Annie, right here. Stand, stand, can you stand up? There, give them a big round of applause right there. Okay? You can sit down. Been married 64 years, I believe, this August. We're sitting in our small group. They live in Florida. They come up and see um, Andrea and Lee in our small group. And we're sitting there and we're asking them, hey, Guys have been married a long time. How's that possible? I mean, what's the secret? And I'll never forget what Uncle Max said. By being great forgivers. You want a great marriage? You need to have two great forgivers. If, If you are a great forgiver, guess what? You will have a great marriage. If you are a terrible forgiver, you will have a terrible marriage. Good marriages are the result of two. Great forgivers. And so you ask for it. You offer it. You accept it. You forgive yourself. In essence, you live in a spirit of forgiveness. Take a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Be kind and loving to each other, forgiving each other, just as God forgave you in Christ. How does God forgive you in Christ? He forgives you quickly, completely, continually, freely, and eternally. He forgives you in all kinds of ways. That's how you and I are to forgive our kids. And by the way, sometimes we have to offer that to our kids too, don't we? And those are humbling times. But God says in his word, for, for honor to come, humility must be first. And so you come and you say, you know what, I blew it, I'm sorry. And so good godly parents love their kids fiercely like Christ does. The second thing, will you write this down, is never give up on them. When you, when, when you love someone fiercely, you don't give up on them no matter what. I love these two translations out of the Bible. 1 Corinthians 13, 7, love knows no limit to its endurance, no end to its trust, no fading of its hope. It can outlast anything. Look at the NLT version, love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. The fact is, we all have failures in our life. So we all need someone to come in when we've messed up and to hang with us, to show us grace, to give us a second chance. That's what fierce love does, and that's the kind of love that the Father shows you and I. Take a look at Isaiah 54, verse 10. The mountains and hills may crumble, but my love for you will never end. So says the Lord who loves you. Human love wears out. Sometimes our kids are just unlovable. And that is why we need God's strength. That is why we need to be good, godly parents. So that we can have a supernatural strength to love them, to reflect back to them. Acceptance and affirmation and love and responsibility. The things, those very things that God shows us. Take a look at this verse out of Proverbs 14, 26. Reverence for God gives a man deep strength. His children have a place of refuge and security. My vision for your life is that your life will impact four generations beyond you. Because you've come and you've said, God, teach me to number my days. I want to present before you a heart of wisdom. And thank you, God, for accepting me and my uniqueness completely. God, thank you for affirming my value constantly because Jesus died for you and the, God made you, and the Holy Spirit lives in you. And God, thank you for entrusting me with responsibility, even though I blow it at times. In fact, I blow it a lot of times. But God, thank you that you use those things to grow me up, to help me to be an emotionally mature person. God, thank you, God, for the correction that you've given me, because I've blown it. And for your unconditional love. God, I want my life to speak. Not just to my generation, but to generations to come. Let's pray. Lord, I just really. God, you're great. You're an awesome God. You're a God who chooses to show mercy and grace and kindness towards us who are fumbling our way through life, trying to figure out what life is about and at the same time impacting our kids and our grandkids. And you work with us, God, because you delight in us. And you've got a vision for our life that is far bigger and greater than ours. And may we, God, be a generation that is found to number our days, that we might be wise, that we might have understanding to impact our kids in such a way, Lord, that we can see their lives blossoming and becoming all that you want them to be. And that through their lives, God, our community at large, our nation is turned around. God, give us good families. God, help us to strengthen the little ones that go to our church. Help us to be those who are involved in our students, God. And all the demands that come upon them in life, God, help us. God help us to be that way in our community. God, I don't know what to say. I just know that this is so critical. And I just, I just thank you for your grace. So, Lord, we lift this up to you. We look to you to lead us and guide us with our unique kids the unique personalities that are in our lives, God. Lead us and guide us. It's about you. We give you this in your son's name, amen.